this is Sinner. So, before the episode of Big Red Potion that you're about to listen to, it's, uh, it would be a good idea to go for a couple of things, I would say. So, the first thing is that we recorded with Lee Alexander, uh, editor of the Gama Sutra site and author of Sexy Video Game Land blog. Um, unfortunately, as you'll hear during the show, Lee's area, I think it was uh, Bol- she lives in Baltimore, um, was hit by a tornado, uh, a small tornado like moments before we recorded, I think it was about an hour before we re- recorded, and uh, as an after effect of that, her connectivity completely dropped uh, halfway through recording. We just lost connection with her and we couldn't get through to her again, and then about 10 minutes later we got a message over Gmail from her iPhone saying that uh, she just couldn't connect and... Uh, uh, unfortunately that was that she did reassure us that she'd uh, love to come to the show again and do a proper full recording with us which uh, we're very much looking forward to but uh, unfortunately we are only able to record half an hour of her today we decided to carry on with the rest of the show because we didn't feel like we'd covered the topic uh, as fully as we'd like to so um, they'll, I think it's the first half hour we'll have Lee on us and then the rest of the show will be without her the second thing is that uh, the whole episode, which kind of makes it extra- especially unfortunate that we lost uh, Lee halfway through, the whole episode is to do with one of her blog posts, which she posted on her blog, sexyvdgameland.blogspot.com, uh, just a quick plug there. Um, she posted it in 2008, uh, in December 2008. It's called Choices, Choices, if you want to search for it, but... Um, I thought it would be a good idea to read a short excerpt from it to kind of preface the show and give you an idea of what Lee was talking about in the blog post and what we wanted to talk about in the podcast. So, that is exactly what I'm going to do. Here it goes. The only complaint I hear about Persona 4 is that there's literally two hours of gameplay before you take any kind of meaningful control over your protagonist, and three hours more if you're a slow reader, before you enter your first dungeon. I know, I know, any significant kind of non-interactivity is a horrendous no-no in the world of game design. They've done studies that show that the longer the player has to sit there, the less engaged they are with the play, with a caveat that certain types of cutscenes, for example, can actually drive player engagement. But the thing I'd like to know is this, why in the world would you ever finish a game that offers at minimum 80 hours of mechanically identical gameplay throughout that requires an enormous amount of repetition and patience that can at times be brutally frustrating? See instant death attacks that can banish hours of progress if you're not being motivated by mo- emotional investment. I find the old refrain, I want to play games and not watch them, to be slightly oversimplified. And indeed, I love Pixel Junk Eden because all there is to do is play. One of my favourite all-time games is Castlevania Symphony of the Night, because I just want to kill things and complete maps. That's one way of enjoying video games, but entire games have cropped up around the idea of immersion and depth. There are just as many games that try to satisfy the player's desire for a long-term experience, as there are ones that offer quick-hit risk and reward. Persona 4 is absolutely not a quick-hit title. It requires you to make an enormous investment, In what you're doing, it requires you to own that silent protagonist and act on an interest in the themes of the game world, and it requires you to be interested enough in its story and its subtext to keep driving it to unfurl. And not everyone's going to find that sufficiently interesting, but along with all the top lists I've made lately comes the thematic refrain that I'm going to carry with me as my major takeaway of the year, and that's, engagement is a choice, at least in part. 
Persona 4's exposition is a highly detailed slow burn. Delicately paced pauses offer you the opportunity to tap into the sense of alienation that a city boy feels when he moves into a sonorously rainy countryside painted with all the visual touchstones of rural Japan. Making tons of menu selections between things like thank you, I don't want this, and dot 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 can seem rote and meaningless at a glance, especially when you note that your answer has little or no effect in the gameplay. But in a game that is hauntingly and in no uncertain terms about the masks you wear to face life hardships, the empty buzz of a classroom full of strangers, or the sight of your young relative uncomplainingly feeding herself in her father's absence, can have additional meaning, especially as you choose what face to put on for them. It's all there if you want to look. Of course, the preference for games that will very quickly respond and reward your input in mechanics-driven, visible ways is wholly natural. Most people like video games because they like that when they press an input button, something quantifiably responds. But I don't like the easy dismissal of games that are structured so that when you put thought in you can get emotion back. Maybe on some level games are responsible for engaging and satisfying the player, but I don't care to invalidate the idea that as a game that a game is a framework within which a player can elect to engage with it themselves. The game won't do it all for you, and you can play your own role in what you yourself take away from it. If you haven't played Persona 4 yet, I advise really making time for it. Please don't rush through the opening. If there's something else you need to be doing, or if you feel like you just feel like killing things right off, don't sit down with it. Cave out some time, sorry, carve out some time to see what the exposition has to offer you, and allow it to build for you a foundation for your relationship with the game. Decide to invest in the story, and you won't even mind its cliche moments. Right, I think we'll leave it there. Um, so hopefully that gives you kind of an idea of uh, what Lee's talking about despite my slightly um, misguided reading of it. But um, uh, I think that will do us for this introduction. So I hope you enjoy the show. So, brought to you by the Game Reviews and the Unified Gamers Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that saved the princess from herself. I am your dogged host, Sinan Kibber, and I am joined by regular guests, Eddie Inzato. Hey, what's up? And Jeffrey Matleff. Hi, all. And we are also very uh, honoured and flattered to be joined by the editor of Gama Sutra, author of the Sexy Video Game Land blog, and a woman who describes herself on Twitter as a Brooklyn music soldier and hard partier. It is, of course, the music soldiering, hard partying, the Alexander. Thank you very much, guys. I'm honoured and flattered to have been invited. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I just just reading on your Twitter that there's a tornado going on over there? Um, yeah, actually, one had just blown through Brooklyn, of all places. Um, you know, it was a pretty cloudy, overcast day, and I had just finished work, and then all of a sudden, the lights start flashing, and the window panes start rattling, and, and this torrential, torrential rain blew all the little ornaments off of my windshield, uh, windshelf, like my shelf by the window, and... Um, 
Yeah, in, in about 10 minutes it was over, but apparently it was indeed a tornado. And I think all my friends are okay. Oh, gosh. Wow. That's abnormal. Yeah, we're starting to see some pictures of the damage. Um, like out here in the, in the wasteland where my friends and I all live, and it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty intense. I've never seen something like that happen. That's crazy. Mm. I actually found out like the other day that apparently in Britain, where I am, uh, we get twice as many t- tornadoes as you get in the US or per, per kind of like square square really? meter area. Yeah, that's a really weird fact because I've obviously never seen a tornado here in London. But we, I don't we, believe, I think that was my first. Wow. Yeah. Educational, that's what this show is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talking of education, uh, I've, we, uh, just kind of before the show, I, um, people have heard uh, that excerpt from your blog post, Lee, about uh, engagement being a choice. One of um, my favorite mantras to bang on about. <laughs> that's why we got you on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and yeah, I, 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 so kind of leading on from that, I thought it'd be great to kind of start this discussion talking about talking about that uh, quote by talking about maybe some games which we've played recently where it's kind of been pertinent. And uh, we always like to get the guest <laughs> going first to these things. So um, I wonder if there's any kind of games maybe you've played recently which have kind of brought that quote to mind. Oh, absolutely. There, yeah. Um, for me, particularly this year, it's been Red Dead Redemption because I, I mean, I love that game. It's, I think, the contender for my number one game of the year. But I'm not a fan of open world games. I require, um, you know, something of a linear structure. I think I'm kind of uncommon in gamers among that, you know, gamers like to have a lot of choices and they don't like cutscenes. but I, I sort of like a guided experience. I always have liked a strong, um, you know, narrative thread. So it's always been really challenging for me, um, to, you know, effortlessly engage in open world games like I, I I used to you know have friends over and play Grand Theft Auto with them um, because I didn't really have the focus and discipline to get through it myself and finish all the missions if there wasn't one I was interested in um, and at the same time I'm a, I'm a huge completist like I, I become really frustrated if, if a game doesn't look like it's going to let me do everything and get 100% um, so my my inability to easily engage with open world games combined with my um, obsession with actually completing them means I, I, I am very challenged to stay on task and finish them. Um, but what Rockstar did with um, Red Dead Redemption is they created this really, really beautiful living world that was pretty compelling to just explore. And, um, you know, again, I've always kind of been skeptical of emergent narratives as well. Um, but that's ironic because that's pretty much the encapsulation of my engagement is a choice philosophy in that you're being given the tools to sort of build a story and it's your decision, um, you know, to decide whether that means something to you emotionally or not. Um, you know, so when I was playing, I sort of, you know, remained engaged with it for longer than usual by um, kind of imagining about the world and imagining about the character. And, and there's so many things you can do in that game that it doesn't, you know, it's not even telling you to do, um, you know, you can, stumble upon all of these accidental moments that are really kind of incredible like oh you know even if you just accidentally kill somebody you know um and then you know then you're on the run and and you sort of think about like what would that be if i was just telling this happy accident as a short story um but that's that's what i'm talking about in terms of the kind of things you have to electively do when you're playing you have to make that decision to engage on that level and and um think of it that way so that was my most recent experience with that it's, it's really interesting because um, I kind of had I had the reverse, and I kind of intrigued to to ask you about your sort of experience with Grand Theft Auto, which I'm guessing you you kind of found it harder to engage with. Um, yeah. Um, I, I mean, my favorite Grand Theft Auto was Vice City. Um, I, I didn't 
you know, I, I wasn't, I, I loved Vice City because it really played into the over-the-top, exaggerated, hyper-neon, you know, drug-addled 80s, you know, with the music and the ridiculous outfits. Like, I, I really, I thought that was fun. Um, latter installments took themselves, you know, more seriously than I would have liked to have seen. Um, and for me, the fun of GTA 4 was like, oh, hey, it's New York. Oh, wait, I'm done. You know, <laughs> like, I live here. Okay, cool. Um you know, I, I much more enjoyed engaging with the environment than I enjoyed playing the game. And, you know, and, and then, you know, I was living with a boyfriend during San Andreas and he was really into it. So I basically just watched. Um, but, yeah, with Grand Theft Auto, I, I did, you know, I, I'm not a very good shooter in general. Um, so I, if if I was being frustrated in missions, I found it hard to persist. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think you have to like the world to make that decision. And, you know, I was really impressed with what they did in, in recreating the LA environment in San Andreas and, and, and in, in making a New York feel in GTA 4. I appreciated it aesthetically, but for me as a player, I, it didn't hold me, you know, I could admire it, but it didn't hold me. That's interesting. Has um, Jedi, 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 <laughs> Jeff and Eddie, not the, the symbiosis of the both of you, uh, separate people. Um, did you guys play Red Dead Redemption this year? Yes. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked about it before and I had some other problems, but I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, go ahead, Eddie. Um, I, I kind of felt the same way about Red Dead Redemption. I was really enamored with the world, and I found myself pretending, you know, like a little kid, like playing make-believe, riding through the, the countryside um, to really get into the game. Um, for As for the, the general gameplay, it was just sort of standard to me. But by doing that and really getting involved with the world and just sort of observing and... and doing all those things, it, it made it a lot more playable for me. That's interesting. I, I, Same I, here, yeah. I guess for me, like I, I, I kind of, it brings your quote to mind as well, because I'm just not naturally drawn to Westerns as a, as a theme for, for games. Hmm. And I, I, I just wonder if, because I put so many hours into Grand Theft Auto 4, I must have put 40, 50 hours just enjoying that world. And I think because it, the, the engine and the, the play is so uh, translated in, in Red Dead Redemption, coupled with my kind of sort of natural indifference maybe to Westerns as a theme, I just, I found it really hard to, to get into Red Dead Redemption. And I just, you know, I don't think the game did anything wrong, yet it was a really difficult game for me to to get into. And yet I can kind of see that the, the writing is a bit more mature in Red Dead Redemption. You can see Definitely. that. Um, mm-hmm. The characters are more believable. And and yet I preferred Grand Theft Auto 4, so I just feel like the game had no chance of me from the start. Um, Sinan, where do you live? I live in London, so yeah, I've never so I've never experienced New York. Right, and and you're you're or you're, the um, West, right, <laughs> or well, the West. <laughs> but you're born and raised UK, right? Yeah, spend all my life in London. So I wonder if the sort of romance and the drama of the American frontier is sort of culturally. Um, geared to be more interesting to us than it would might be to you that you know that's the western you know you know cowboy fantasy is is i wonder how much that's a part of the american upbringing and the american experience that that that, that that's glamorized and 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 beautiful to us and maybe less interesting to you whereas you know something like an ur- the urban locale of new york city is is much more universally appealing i mean i don't know if that's true or not i think that's definitely uh 
Mm-hmm. Very, very true. I, I, you know, New York is very much like London uh, as a city. Uh, lots right. of sort of, you know, multicultural and very close knit. And, uh, you know, everyone just walks around London to get to from A to B, just like they do in, in kind of Manhattan. Um, I mean, uh, I I guess uh, you really have to be into Western films here to to even have a kind of start, uh, a starting base to appreciate that kind of history that, that yeah, happened in the Midwest. It's timeless Americana, but it's definitely Americana, I think. Absolutely. Which is uh, fascinating because the rock star, those guys are UK. Oh, well, Red Dead Redemption is made by um, a, a California team, but um, uh, Rockstar North is they're, um, they're over there. So that they were able to so faithfully capture the New York City culture and, and the you know, Los Angeles culture, you know, the way, the, what, the work that they've done on the main GTAs is just in light of the fact that they're not from here is pretty impressive to me. I think, uh, I know with the, with the GTAs that those guys have a sort of huge, uh, love for the, the films, the kind of, mm. the, maf- the mafia yeah. films that have, that have all in New York. And I think as the games sort of progressed in that series, they, that faithfulness to the city, I guess, must've grown as they, as the cities themselves became more visually faithful. And um, I wonder if, if that, that degree of satire of our culture could have come from inside. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, again, that's like one of the things I kind of missed in Red Dead Redemption was the satire. Because it, it, to me, I can't see it. But I'm wondering, do you guys, as, as you know, Americans, do you kind of see a bit more satire there? Because it's something that's more intrinsic to, to the way you've been brought up. Um, yeah, actually, that's, that is what I always found particularly brilliant about the games. Like, even though I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily find the story of GTA 4 to be meaningful at all. Um, again, like I said, I thought the stories took themselves too seriously in, in San Andreas and in 4. Um, and I, um, thought, you know, I liked that the characters were all like really despicable over the top stereotypes. I thought that worked for the series, but in terms of narrative engagement, you know, I thought it was you know a bit overwrought at times, whatever. But what appe- always appealed to me most about Grand Theft Auto and why I think it's one of the most brilliant gaming properties ever made is the aptitude of that satire. It's satirizing the player, it's satirizing video games, and it's satirizing American consumerism. And all of it's sort of very pointedly. Um, commenting on and deriving humor from the very culture that allows it to exist, a game like Grand Theft Auto. Um, <laughs> and and I just, I think that's an incredible achievement. I mean, much too often GTA gets dragged around for being absurd or violent or for being a little bit narratively clumsy. But those things about it are brilliant. My favorite things to do in Grand Theft Auto games are to drive around and listen to the radio. Like, it's awesome. Just awesome. The talk shows, I mean, they're so hilarious. Absolutely. I think for Red Dead Redemption, it was less of an obvious satire, definitely. More maybe a... There's more social commentary based around uh, American politics. And And imperialism uh, or whatever it is. Yeah, things like that. Just different ideologies within our culture, within, you know, the United States, that maybe is harder to grasp from outside. I mean, I feel like it it may be... um, Sort of universal, but definitely it is American for sure. I'm going to throw my hands up like I didn't even do history at kind of a junior school level. (laughs) So, you know, it's just a concept that is is really lost to me. It's something I've had to kind of acclimatize to as I've grown up and got a bit more culturally aware. And uh, yeah, so I'm kind of learning with a lot of things like, you know, Red Dead Redemption, except obviously I didn't try hard enough to learn, uh, which says a lot about me. I had a very... um, 
very mixed reaction to Red Dead Redemption because I, I agree that I, I love the setting and, you know, the world it takes place in, but I found that I had a harder time engaging in the narrative because there's just so many moments where the things that you're doing are at odds with the things this character should be doing. Like, you know, Martin's trying to save his family, but he, there's that part where you're, you're helping that guy who's clearly insane find his map. And right. <laughs> for all you know, you're killing innocent people. And, and you do even more horrendous things later on. And it's like this. And it's not that it's not fun to do. Like, you know, it's a relatively enjoyable game. But I, I found the story that's happening in my mind was better than the one that they were portraying. And the one they were portraying was just so incongruous to. And the funny thing is, is, you're exemplifying exactly what I was trying to say that that's so often the case that we're given imperfect tools, but we're able to still derive something from it. Um, so if you sit back on your laurels and you expect it to be fed to you, you might be disappointed, but like some, you know, someone who's approached it the way that you did, you said you had a story going on in your mind that you found enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. Except for the fact that it was always questioned and I actually didn't finish the game. I played, I played it a while, got about three quarters or so, I believe. So um, someday I may go back, but it just, like, I kind of lost interest. I felt like it was losing a lot of narrative steam and I just kind of tuned out after a while and didn't feel enough drive to continue. No, that's that happened to me as well. I can't, I can never claim to have finished that game and I never will. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, that kind of leads into what my game is and I'll very, very quickly go for it because um, I, We've talked about this game so much on this podcast before, uh, and Uh-oh. Eddie and Jeff already saw it, so here, <laughs> me mention it, but uh, it's Heavy Rain, and like the the whole um, dissonance between what I want, what I, I felt was right for, to do, and what my character was doing was was that game's problem from start to finish, and trying to understand what my motivation was in that game was, was a huge thing, but to kind of distance myself from that distance sorry distance discussion from that a lot of people enjoyed that game despite all the problems with its with its writing and its uh its kind of characters and and how they were falsely portrayed and I'm, I'm kind of talking about one character in particular um they just enjoyed it because it was a very unique experience they enjoyed the interactivity of it they enjoyed the the, the fidelity of it the fact that there really isn't anything like it and i i I guess again, it kind of ties into to what we're talking about because I'm very envious of them being able to have that approach. Um, I really wish I could have gone to gone into it with that approach, just being able to kind of appreciate the game for what it is. But I I've been so anticipating it and expecting big things from it that it ultimately disappointed. Mm. I, I don't know if that is that like a I don't know if you guys think is that a common problem maybe from people within the games press or just gamers in general are we just we expect certain things from games and they don't deliver what we expect oh, absolutely definitely yeah, i feel like that's one of the biggest problems with uh critiquing games or just you know giving your opinions about games is you want to play the game that you want to play maybe not the game that was actually created and offered to you so in when that when that doesn't align properly it sort of um upsets the player i guess and they blame the game rather than themselves i couldn't agree more i i I think with with heavy rain it was and again i'm kind of trying to distinguish between press and and gamer because we were all listening to david cage telling us about what this game was going to be so i feel like in some ways we're not totally at fault (laughs) we were we were being fed what this game was going to be and, and it just wasn't what it what he said it was it wasn't this uh intricately interactive drama where you had so much control it just that that's not what it was um but 
like at the same time, you know, people are really enjoying this game. Uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, I should take that into consideration when I'm, when I'm talking about the game, that uh, people outside of the press specifically, and that's what I've noticed, are really, really enjoying the game. Well, here's the funny thing about about being press is that, you know, for me as a critic, you know, I, I don't often write reviews anymore, but I'm, you know, I go on and off with it. And, um, of course, I'm, you know, obligated to sort of cover the entire lens of the gaming industry in a balanced way. Um, and so in so doing, I really try to separate my own expectations from, from the final product. I am very careful about reserving prejudgment, um, you know, things like that. But in a case where, like, um, like... David Cage or Peter Molyneux is the same way. It's I feel responsible for taking into account what the expectations of my audience is, um, especially when the creators have gone to great lengths to perpetuate that expectation. Um, I like to think that I keep my ear to the ground and understand what fans and general audiences alike are expecting from a final product. Um, and I, I often grapple with that myself. Is it fair to weigh a game in the context of what my audience was led to expect. Um, and and I, the, the answer I often arrive at is, is I think it is. You know, otherwise we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have um, critical reception that was delighted by a surprise hit. Um, I think I almost have a responsibility to, to my readers to know, you know, what impressions they have beforehand. You know, even if I'm keeping my own personal impressions out of it, I think that expectations factor in enormously. Um, and most of the time, the marketing behind a game creates that expectation. We should hold them responsible for that when the final product comes out. That's always been my perspective. I tend to agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it, I, I, I would agree. I think it's maybe oversimplifying it to say it, but I, I, I try to write what I write with a subjective mindset and also a bit of an objective mindset, trying to think of what other, how other people are going to come to this to this game. But at the end of the day, you can't you can't just let go of what you what you think. Like then, then you're just betraying yourself, and the piece is going to be false. And I, 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 that's what I think anyway. I don't know if that's what others think, but I, I certainly think that you've got to you've got to keep your opinion strong as well. And if you if you dislike the game, you've got to say why. Exactly. Think... And oh, go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, please. I'm sorry. I do think it's unfortunate, though, to um, that when you are judging a game, that you're using what you've received from the marketing end to uh, to judge what's been created by the people who actually built the game and it it's sort of un- maybe unfair to them if if their marketing didn't do a good job of uh portraying the game accurately you know Absolutely. and misleading people I, I do definitely have to agree with you there. I just, and especially because the marketing is often so far disassociated from development. Most studios, you know, most teams will make a game, and f- for the most part, the vast majority of the time, they have absolutely little awareness, let alone control, over the way it's being sold to the press um, mm-hmm. and to fans. Um, I definitely, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to say, you know, like. They said it was going to be a 10 game, but I think it has problems. So, you know, I'm going to dock the Metacritic points a few lower. Like, you know, you shouldn't. <laughs> I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying about judging the game itself versus its marketing. Um, but I think that the context of critical reception is important and the marketing is a component of that, is, is I should probably clarify. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as well. I think that there's a kind of 
a distinguishing well we kind of tend to distinguish when there is this kind of one person who's at the heart of a game like like we were saying like peter molyneux or david cage or uh, or will wright we kind of see it as their creation so we almost kind of think well it, has he has he delivered what he said he was going to do with this game whereas i tend i tend i i don't tend to listen to the more marketing side where you i don't know something say something like halo where you're told what's going to feature all the 150 different things that you'll see in this game I, I don't tend to take that on board but I think that is a whole separate other discussion <laughs> which, which probably no actually I, I feel no? like it's actually I think okay. it's related um, because you know I've actually gotten into this discussion with members of my community as well is it fair to judge a game on its intention uh, you know people say well how can you how can you tell what a developer intended? Well, sometimes you can. If you know what you're looking at, and if you are a qualified critic, you can see in the design the shape of what the developers were aiming to do. Um, when you're seeing flaws in a game, you're seeing things that were attempted but not achieved. Um, so I think it's also, you know, when we're talking about weighing games against things that you knew about it beforehand, I, I definitely think it is fair to consider, you know, is is did they aim too high? Is this was the scope of their vision achievable? You know, did they set out to do something and fail? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And the, the game that immediately comes to mind is Too Human, which I just think is like. <laughs> the, the, uh, no, sorry, Eddie. Eddie loves the, the game. I was actually going to mention really? Dennis Dyack when you were talking about. <laughs> well, he, well, he's another one, a big talker yeah. and and fan. You know, and and I, it's just your guess is as good as mine as to whether we're harder on these guys because they're big talkers. Like, you know, I. I love Peter Molyneux. I love to hear him speak because I, I, I would rather hear someone say, yes, we can, and yes, this is possible, and yes, th these are my values, and this is what I believe in when I'm creating. I love to hear that out of developers rather than, well, you know, it's unrealistic to try to push the medium, so we're not going to try. You know what I mean? Um, but I definitely do think that the press was harder on a game like Too Human. I, I, God help Duke Nukem when it comes out. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I do think that big talk and big promises set people up. And, and they maybe have a right to be angry and disappointed when they're not met. Does the press? I don't. I, don't, I think that's a different story. I think that we should sort of not, not take revenge on creators for letting us down. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean... The, those big talkers are more controversial because of setting high goals fundamentally. Well, I mean, we're all seasoned gamers here. So I think we all go into these games or we should go to them with at least realistic expectations, not, you know, expect them to totally reinvent the wheel, but, you know, make a step in the direction that they're portraying. Yeah. And there's a difference too, between expectation and hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a good point. That is a good point. Um, since I brought you in, Eddie, do you want to mention? I don't know if you're going to talk about Two Human or another game you've you've played. Uh, recently, Please talk which... about Two Human, actually, because I didn't even play it. I just heard what people said. You know, it wasn't my genre to begin with, and so when I heard what people said, I was like, "Nah." But I would love to hear why you liked it. Um. Well, actually, I didn't. Two Human didn't come to mind as part of this discussion for me because I didn't see a whole lot of barriers to my engagement with the game. I was going to talk about. Uh, Mass Effect and Silent Hill games because of the the controls and the interface between the player and the game being so difficult to come to grips with when you are so excited or, or enamored with the writing and the, the story that you're about to experience. So fighting through controls in order to engage with the narrative. Um, too human, I just kind of liked in general. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, 
I don't know. Should we? Should we? We could come back to Tumen in a bit because I, I think that's an interesting. Maybe I'll I'll talk about that a bit later. But I'm I'm intrigued to hear what you're saying about uh, narrative and, and Mass Effect and Silent Hill. So maybe we could go down that route. Mm-hmm. Well, like, so my examples are they're they're about ignoring the flawed interface, um, because a lot of times I'm I'm aware of what the developers have done previously and I know that the overall experience is going to be rewarding. I know that they write a good story, but I have to, you know, force myself to to manage the game itself in order to experience what I would like to see, you know. It's less about playing as it is about uh, consuming. You're definitely touching on a subject near and dear to my heart when you talk about that as well. Um, you know, I've actually had people fault me as a critic because I'm willing to overlook design flaws in favor of big picture. Um, you know, people say, well, that's, you know, if it's not easy to play and if you have to force yourself to play it, it's a failure. And I, I'm with you. I, I don't agree that control difficulties necessarily have to be in, or prohibitive to the experience. Um, I've, I'm, for Silent Hill is in my top five favorite all-time franchises and always will be, no matter how badly they F the controls. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, this is sort of the apologist's stance because everybody knows that they didn't intentionally make bulky, unwieldy, difficult controls. I'm sure they would have preferred it was fluid. But the apologist for Silent Hill could say that the fact that you feel so poorly in control and so, you know imperfectly able to defend yourself actually enhances the experience. Right. I think a lot of not times... (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually, you you named one of my favorite franchises and one of my least favorite franchises in the same same, uh, umbrella, so that's funny. As, as Lee was saying, uh, there's a tornado where she is right now, and uh, it looks like her internet connection has been cut off. Uh, we're assured she's fine. She emailed us from her iPhone to say that she's she's okay, and uh, so no, nothing to worry about there. Um, and she said that she was on us on another show, and uh, I'm looking forward to that show already. I think we were interrupted when, Jeff, you were going to go through some of the barriers to engagement that you had thought of in preparation, so please regale us with your four barriers. Uh, sure, and first of all, uh, thank you, Lee, for joining us, and um, I hope that your internet comes back. I know that's very important, especially during this harsh climate of TGS. Um, so the four points that, that I had was, um, okay, so the first one is when the mechanics are too broken or boring to really engage you. Um, a good example of that would be like sailing in Wind Waker, which I know a lot of people found really boring, and I did initially as well, but I, I grew to really appreciate it. Um, or another one would be like the the really terrible combat in Deadly Premonition, which is another big deal breaker for a lot of people. Um, so I was curious what you guys had to say about or this the one. traveling in Deadly Premonition, that damn car. <laughs> yes, that's the fast travel item in that game. Total necessity. Yeah. You'll never know about it unless you read about it. 
But I think that's that's the, the specific example Lee was talking about in her article with Persona 4, that she had to really push through a lot of very tiresome play, I think, to, I'm not sure if I'm probably misquoting her, but she, she certainly felt like the first two hours were what she, you had to push through to get to the good stuff in, in Persona 4, and the fact that there's such a long game and it's so drip, drip, drop with its narrative, but she felt like uh, that that was kind of intrinsic to it, and I, I just wonder, like, do you think you'd, you'd appreciate, say, in, uh, in Deadly Premonition, the better, the finer parts of that game uh, if you didn't have to work to get to them, would they be as appreciable? Um, I think that some level of tedium is a good thing because it it does make you appreciate it, as you say, but there's just too much. Like, if the game gave you the fast travel item from the beginning, so you only had to go to each location once to mark it on your map, I think something like that would be acceptable. Right. Um, you know, or... Um, Sin and we've talked um, off the record about No More Heroes 2 and you you like that a lot better than the first one whereas I'm one of the few people kind of like the open world in the first game just to kind of give myself a little bit of a breather just you know something just something else to do for you know a few minutes here or there and I agree that it went on too long but otherwise I thought it, was, it kind of gave each main stage a little bit more grandeur so to speak well, I, I want to throw it over to Eddie because you've you made this tweet. On, uh, I think either today or yesterday, which I thought was really interesting, that you you really just wanted to kind of almost YouTube all the story parts in No More Heroes Two, and just you know enjoy that bit and ignore the rest of the game. Uh, yeah, well, I, that's like, actually what I did for No More Heroes. Um, really? I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that right now. I could not play No More Heroes because there were way too many barriers to play. But in No More Heroes Two, I've I've come around and it, it's not as bad. I started using the classic controller, which made it a little bit more enjoyable to play. Personally, for me, going into No More Heroes 2, I felt like I really had to fight a lot of my preconceptions uh, about No More Heroes 2 because of how much I disliked No More Heroes 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really had to make a kind of conscious choice to take it for what it was. Uh, I feel like the game helped me a lot because it gets rid of a lot of the problems from the first game, but there are still like these elements and these these little things that come up. Like sometimes when the player is particularly aggressive, I think it's uh, when you control the female character. The platforming is just really really bad in, in that in those two levels. Um, and I, I, I realise it's a design choice. He's trying to make a message about uh, some you know platforming in Metal Gear Solid, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's still not very much fun to play when those kind of things come up, I'm immediately going to this mindset, oh god, here we go again, it's just like No More Heroes. But um, I feel like, so I feel like I have to kind of fight that with this game to enjoy the fact that, you know, it, it, there are really good things in, in No More Heroes 2 to appreciate. Um, well, I really just tried to disregard No More Heroes, the first game, um, because there were so many different things fighting me when playing that, and I had heard good things about No More Heroes too. So I I was coming in expecting a more streamlined experience and hoping that I would be able to enjoy it because I I think I'm a Suda Fifty One fan. Um, I like that. I think I'm a Suda Fifty One fan. Love Killer Seven, and a lot of people hate that for its gameplay. Uh, but I mean. The point is, I think I can get past um, maybe not perfect combat in No More Heroes 2, because that's really the only big barrier to me so far, is just that it's the, the, the general mundane combat is just that. It gets a little mon- monotonous. But otherwise, 
I think uh, there's there's far less to hate in No More Heroes too. <laughs> so I could enjoy well, I, I it. I feel like um, both Killer Seven and No More Heroes two have you know too much you know gameplay so to speak, which you know the combat No More Heroes is I thought it was pretty enjoyable, but there is too much of it in both games and. Uh, Killer Seven actually really liked the controls in the combat initially, but the game also goes like I feel like each level in that game is twice as long as it should be. Mm. Um, so I think that that's you know that's a big barrier entry. It's a big one for me. I mean, I beat all these games once, and the truth be told, I, I've gone back and tried to play Killer Seven twice since completing it. Both times I got about three four hours in and could not press on. I just could see oh. myself playing another dozen hours of it. So, you know, this is hugely subjective, like something that might be really boring for me, another person may really like, um, Absolutely. you know, or vice versa. I, I, with No More Heroes 2, the advice I would give to people coming to it is to put it on easy, unless you really enjoy the combat. And if you are, then you might, you might be clinically insane. But, uh, you know, I, I would say put it on easy because... That makes the the fighting so much quicker. You just you just speed through, and you probably could do the same in the first game. To be honest, maybe I, I don't know if you have difficulty settings in the first game, but certainly you know if you do that in the second game, you you push through, and the fighting becomes kind of ridiculously uh, sorry, enjoyably ridiculous because you're overpowered, uh, and you just get to the to the story bits, which I, I would say are the best things about that game. Uh, all the kind of cutscenes and the boss fights in particular, which. Uh, you know, are at the end of these levels and take a lot of work to get to on, on normal difficulty. So I, I almost feel like, you know, some maybe you have to take a step back and change how the way you approach a game to enjoy Oh, that's, that's a strategy I often use while playing games that I play for narrative and I know aren't necessarily the most fun, most enjoyable games to actually control and interface with. I put them on easy. No doubt. Actually, now that I think about mm-hmm. it, I got told by a lot of people to play Mass Effect 2 on easy, which I did, um, because they said the shooting was kind of botched and whatever. Is it Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 1? Probably Mass Effect 1, because Mass Effect uh, yeah. 2, I thought I felt, was uh, a good job. Like, yeah. they did a good job in presenting combat, but Mass Effect 1 was a mess in a lot of ways in terms of that's user probably, interface yeah, That's right. Um, control. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It was it was Mass Effect one, and you know I I think I probably would have not enjoyed the game as much if I played it on on normal difficulty, which is interesting because then in a, some way I'm kind of if I'm trying to put my critical hat on my my critics hat on, like well I normally play games in normal difficulty. That's what I consider the that's why you call it normal. That's what it's you default. choose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Am I really enjoying the game as it is, or am I customizing the game so that I can enjoy it the most? Yeah, I have the same feeling when I when I'm reviewing a game and I happen to play it on easy. I, I feel like, well, would I enjoy this the same this way as I would uh, on normal? But at the and same will time, that affect like, my review. Yeah, at the same as time, like you, you know. It. Oh, sorry, Jeff, you go. I was going to say, as long as you mention your review, I think that's fine. I mean, that was a common criticism I heard about um, Red Faction Guerrilla. Like almost every reviewer person I've mentioned that game said it's a lot more fun when you said it's easy. Mm. But are there examples of games where it's not as much fun when you said it's easy? Um, for me, probably most games. I generally play games on normal, and um, it's kind of my my default as well. Um, especially when I play like an action game, because I, I like to get into the yeah. show the combat and. And I like a challenge. I mean, you guys know me. I tend to play hack and slash games 
you know, multiple times because I really get into the combat and like it to scale up. I would definitely say games like that, like the Devil May Cry style games, games where the the um, advancement of your own skill in the game is the reward for playing. Like that's why you enjoy it is because you are achieving something with your play. Fair enough. I mean, I, I, I do agree. I was being a bit devil's advocate. Yeah. Um, okay. So I feel like we covered for that first one. Jeff, you had three more. I think. I just yeah. want to add something um, though. Oh, sorry. Go for it. Oh, um, well, you, there, there, it seems like there are two aspects to that one point and one being the actual control but also i think more uh regarding uh persona 4 and what lee was talking about is just general pacing like the, those sorts right. of design choices and as long as we mention difficulty i think difficulty itself like in for example in demon souls uh, i remember before you ever played it sin and you said that you had read a review about someone who just couldn't review the game more because it was too review. hard more yeah, than one review so I saw about five or six. If people can get past difficulty in a game like that, then it's it's that's one of the games where the difficulty makes the game more rewarding and it, it gives the game its atmosphere actually. Like, you know, a lot of horror games they thrive on um helplessness of the player, like the feeling that you get and difficulty can do that as well in a game like Demon Souls or in even in other like shooters where you're put against uh, uh, inter- insurmountable odds and you know it's more of your achievement against that where, well, where the difficulty where... oh sorry it's just oh. very, very, very quickly because I like it it feels like with Demon Souls the difficulty is in the DNA of that game yes. you know that, that's what it, that's what the game is about and that's why you enjoy it and I feel like if you that's where I sometimes get concerned with subjectivity of reviews because it's not being pitched to an audience where um, you're not going to enjoy it. I know that sounds stupid, but you know it's very specifically for people who crave that kind of challenge from video games. Well, I think it goes back to what Lee was saying about looking at the intention of the game. I mean, something like Demon Souls doesn't tend to be difficult. I recall, I believe it was at Destructoid when they reviewed Metro 2033, the reviewer said he couldn't complete the game because he got to a section that was too hard. He was like almost out of ammo and he just didn't have enough resources to, to push on. And, you know, he, it was a pretty scathing piece about the game. And, and that's a case where difficulty is a barrier. And I can't, um, I can't say that everybody's, you know, able to push on or that, you know, it's that the player is at fault if they're unable to push on. It's interesting. I, I think it's the difference between a game which is like like Demon Souls, which it, where the difficulty is so intrinsic to it, and just a game which is too hard. Because I feel like <laughs> you know, and I know that sounds stupid, but I feel like there is a difference because I feel like with Demon Souls, the whole point is that it's in a very oppressive world. It's a very oppressive mechanic. Uh, if you take the difficulty away from that, there really isn't anything to truly appreciate about that game. Um, uh, okay, well, that. beyond some... Uh, I feel like it, that... Okay, do it another way. I feel like the difficulty amplifies the yeah. things to appreciate about that game. You take the difficulty away from them, they're not as special. Like, the, 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 the oppressiveness of the atmosphere, the, the, the kind of general story as well, in some ways. I feel like that's all linked to how hard the game is. Whereas, you know, like a shooter's just time. hard... Like, sorry, I was just going to say, if a shooter is just too hard, you know, just a regular old <laughs> shooter mm. where you just kill him, well, that, 
I don't know. Not I think you have to take into account individual player skill sets because, you know, some players are are good at games like, let's say, Demon Souls versus uh, even a standard shooter that may not be as difficult to everyone else. Like for me, for example, I didn't find Demon Souls to be all that difficult after the first parts of Boletaria, but I suck at shooters. I mean, so it's it's a subjective thing. Difficulty. Maybe difficult is difficult is the wrong word to describe Demon Souls. I don't. I'm almost want to use the word frustrating because I don't feel like skill is really actually that much of Demon Souls. I don't feel like there is much skill to its combat. That you know, it's very much magic. It's it's very simple. It, it essentially, like when I I was sorry, that's a very loud train. But uh, when I was on a, on a Game People podcast, I described it as Zelda very much in terms of how you move your character and fight with him uh, uh, because I think it, that's what it is uh, So, and I would never call Zelda a game of skill um, so I don't see why necessarily you should call Demon Souls a game of skill it's just the mechanic itself is it is designed to frustrate you it's designed to annoy you that you're going to lose all these souls you've collected after so long so I don't feel like it's skill, I feel like it's 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 just how that game is, it's, it's trying to make you uh, really work to get through it. Should we move on to the, the next one? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So the other one is when the writing is so bad that it is genuinely distracting from the experience. A good recent example would, um, for me would be Metroid Other M, where Samus uh, has all her powers, but she's not under authorization to use them. There's just so many times, like every minute or so, you'll see a power-up, and you're like, I could get to that if only I could use my grapple beam, and it won't let you, and, you know, I, I actually did enjoy the game, but I just, I could not engage in it, even to the extent I could other Metroids, because it's just such a bafflingly stupid design choice. It is very yeah. contrived, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Just like I feel like there are a lot better ways to explain that, like they did in all the other Metroid games, and a lot of other games since the beginning of time. Yeah, the, the basic <laughs> one is, oh, you lost all your stuff on your way here. That's it's not it's not much less contrived, but at least it's it's not doesn't ruin the character. Right. You know, it doesn't destroy what she's about. You know, we, yeah. we, we associate Samus with authority and um, you know being the the first kind of kick-ass female character in gaming. Like to take that away from her is is a bit strange. I, I, I guess the example. Of, oh, sorry, Jeff, you go. Oh, I was just going to ask if you want to move on to the next one, but you I've, I've got I've got, an ex- I've got another example just to annoy you guys with. Um, <laughs> uh, I um, Modern Warfare Two, I feel, is a game where the poor writing really made it hard for me to appreciate how dramatic, in terms of. A, a viscerally dramatic game it is. I don't feel like many games compare in terms of being viscerally dramatic like Modern Warfare. It really knows how to, to use sound and camera and uh, general sort of dialogue actually, in terms of dialogue whilst you're in this situation, not the story dialogue, to uh, to amplify the atmosphere and to make you feel like you're in this horrible situation of war I don't feel like many games can do that um, unfortunately it's very hard to take any of that seriously when <laughs> America's being invaded by like whatever I, I've completely you know, 
put that story out of my mind because it was so stupid. Uh, it, and it's a shame because the first Modern Warfare had at least some kind of grounding within reality, but the, the second Modern Warfare just went for the big action movie over-the-top ridiculousness where it's just completely unrelatable. To, to It was such a, a ridiculous overplay on the fears of modern society that it lost all grounding within reality and I kind of lost interest in that story, which is a shame because, mm. like I say, it's very viscerally dramatic. Right. On the other hand, though, sometimes uh, if you have no narrative or, you know, a bad narrative, you can still enjoy the play because you don't even pay attention to it because it's, it's sort of mindless. You know, it's not even a question. Like, you would never say Mario has a bad narrative, you know? <laughs> and, I, you know, in some ways that worked with Modern Warfare too because it was so early on ridiculous and bad that I was able to ignore the story uh, very, you know, very early on. Whereas I guess something which ruins its story towards its end or, you know, the writing gets poorer or it just loses its charm, then that's almost worse. I, I kind of agree with you on that in that respect, yeah. I honestly feel like, yeah, Modern Warfare 2, I just sort of was going through the motions a lot. You know, it was it was solid uh, play mechanics and th- that's all, you know. I wasn't really in- interested in, in much of the story except for whatever twists they may have thrown at us and right. no Russian. Uh, no Russian. Um, I, f- I feel like we've discussed that to the end of the earth. Should we, should we move on to point three? So the third one is when a game gives you so little to go on that it's hard to really invest in what's happening. Uh, the game that I was going to talk about that I'll, I'll just summarize real quick um, for time reasons was Fable 2. So what's interesting about Fable 2 is that it doesn't really encourage you to engage in its narrative. I mean, you can. There, there is a little bit of of uh, impetus there in the beginning, but most of the game, all the kit, it has a very sparse narrative and a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor. So you can kind of take the story seriously or just mess around and cause mischief and mayhem with the NPCs. And I thought it was a really interesting approach, but I personally was not able to engage in that much because all the characters were so blank. I mean, you could take a wife or, or husband if you desire, but there's no real chemistry there. Like, it's just somebody who exists in your house. And and it was just a little bit too too blank slate for me. So I was curious uh, what you guys, how you guys felt about that, because I know other people really engaged with that game. I didn't at all. <laughs> I just kind of went through it. I was like, okay, this is this is that. Done. That's I interesting. Like to. That is interesting, because out of the three of us, and... Do not take it in any ten- in negative undertone. I'd have thought you you might be the one to enjoy it the most out of the three of us. I and understand I, what you mean, though. Yeah, like I, I think you might. I don't know because there is a lot of ambition in that game, um, and a lot of ideas and concepts, and you know, interesting ways to kind of subvert how you would naturally play a video game. Um, There's a lot I, of I mean, freedom and not telling you what to do and yeah, things like that. Exactly. Uh, but for but, me, it was just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you guys. I didn't, I, I, I liked Fable Two, but not nearly as much as everyone else did. And I, I, I think it just it was too loose with its narrative, and it's hard to make you care about the more sort of serious parts of it when they do come up if you don't really appreciate the context. Having said that, I know that, and I can 
totally see what he was going for with that game. Like, and it's very much just a uh, do what you want to within a fantasy setting. Like that's what he's trying to 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 engender. Um, and I I just it didn't quite click. And I wonder if it was because of like Jeff is saying, it is just too loose. And it's too it's too difficult to get grounded within that world compared to say something like oh uh, Fallout Three, where you do have a lot more narrative and context to right. what's going on. I would say though that a lot of open world games obviously fall under this particular category, and it it actually got me thinking about a very specific example that you gave about Assassin's Creed Two in that it never gave you direction with your weapons. And I, I feel like it's sort of along the same lines as what Jeff is talking about, the reason that you couldn't really enjoy um, making yourself an assassin because you ended up just doing the same thing because you, there was very little telling you which way to do it. Is, that, interesting. is that accurate? Yeah, I think, that, that's, I think that's, that, that is fair. And I think like just... We should clarify because we had this big long discussion about Assassin's Creed 2 at the end of last year. I, I did, I did like the game. I did like Assassin's Creed 2, but I, I do feel personally like it needed a bit more of a push. But then it's interesting because then this is the whole thing. It's different approaches. Like you really appreciated that it mm-hmm. didn't really push you into doing certain things. Sometimes you saw that as freedom, whereas I saw it as lack of direction. And you kind of wonder, like, well, what happens if we just reverse you know what is it the 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 day that we're playing it on maybe you know that you know yeah if i was in a better mood would i have been more willing to just experiment you know it's it's interesting because it it asks a lot of questions about games criticism and uh the nature of you know you have to invest in a video game because they're so long so you if something like niggles you like this it can really affect your whole judgment because you're having to go through this niggle so much like, it can be the tiniest thing, and I really think, in this instance, it is a kind of a tiny thing that, for me to say, it doesn't really push it in me into doing it one way or the other. Uh, well, I, I, I could, I'd rather I say, I, I could argue that it's a little thing. I actually think it is a more important, it's my sort of philosophy in game design. But the, theoretically, you know, it could be a tiny little thing which just affects my whole judgment of the game. Um, and... I end up giving a bad review because I've had to to deal with this little thing for six, seven, eight hours. I just wondered, like, do you guys get that, or is that just a bit? Is that too oversimplifying it? Well, I think that there are the small things that may be small to other people that really just turn me off as well. Um, basically, the opposite of you. Um, when I'm forced to play in a particular way, uh, like. Um, one example I was thinking of was being forced to do uh, planet scans in Mass Effect 2. You didn't have to do a whole lot of them, but you were forced to do some. And that didn't bother me because I, I actually started getting OCD about scanning planets. But me I too. could see that something <laughs> like that, you know, when they, when they force you to do something like that, or even in No More Heroes 2, you can't progress past an area if you go to the end, it says kill everyone first. Right. Say, well, what if I don't want to? You know, right. who, well, who are you? I want to go. You know, so that's a small thing maybe to to everyone, <laughs> but sometimes um, small things can really affect your perception of a game as a whole. You know, just like you said. 
and they're different things well, for everybody. What I was getting at with Fable, though, is that what's interesting is, like, I, I was kind of disappointed in myself that I was unable to invest in the game. Because mm-hmm. I, know, I know some people have, um, like, Corvus Elrod had a, a great story about how he, he was playing as an evil character at one point, and he got really genuinely unnerved by one scene where he had to slaughter a whole town. And I didn't have that reaction. I just thought it was, like, fun and empowering and kind of, like, silly. It's and fun. Maybe not silly, but, you know, it was, like, just a cool, dramatic moment, and it didn't engage me beyond that surface level. And You're I, the kind I know, of guy who fakes deaths on, like, you know, podcasts, so we already kind of know where you're coming from. On this. That, that could be it, guys. I don't know. What's, what's wrong with me? Um, and a, another example I wanted to throw out there was from a um, friend of, of the show, Michael Abbott, had a, a similar experience with The Sims, which I've not played, but it sounds similar to Fable in this regard. You just kind of it can invest as much or as little as you like into it, where he was playing the game as a single father trying to take care of his daughter, and he neglected her too much until she was taken away. And he found himself genuinely unnerved by this and, you know, really upset and, you know, racked with guilt. And I, I don't think that I could, you know, take these kinds of these kinds of games as seriously when they don't give me a little bit more of a dramatic push to care about these characters. And Which it's I mean, a very subjective thing. I've, I really feel like this ties into one of my primary problems with a lot of games and that's um, the difference between playing to win and playing as yourself. Um, you never and I, play to win. You never play to win. Right. Right. Well, I feel like ultimately we all kind of do because we get, you know, games are linear and you get to the end. Like that, that's the, that's the majority of video games. You, you you play to end it, and the end is the win stage. So ultimately, like you can say you don't play to win, but if you are playing, then you are kind of playing to win by default, if you get my drift. Because I understand what yeah. you're saying. My yeah. win state is seeing the end. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, say something like Fable 2, right? Uh, the best way to, to kind of win that game, I guess, is to manipulate townspeople as much as you can, and that's very easy to do. You can just, you know, do your dances or give them gifts or whatever, and they'll all end up loving you very quickly. It's it's too easy uh, in that, if you look at it from that perspective. If you're just playing your character and trying to be natural, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go out of your way to please everybody in this town if you're playing yourself. Then maybe you can get something from that experience, but how do you separate the two when there's this big, like, neon win state for you to, to get to. Like, it's just there all the time. You, you progress, 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 win, win, win. That's that's the end of video games. So, and that, again, I know we bring it up all the time, and I will only mention it in passing, but that is my primary problem with Heavy Rain as a video game. And I feel it's like it's not just Heavy Rain, it's a lot of video games where I, I've got in my mind, and it maybe just that's something I need to get through, but I don't feel like games help that I've got to get out the idea of winning the video game. Yeah, I know like, exactly what you mean. I, I'm sorry, Andy, I, I had a similar experience with the, the Mass Effect games due to the way the dialogue trees worked, is that even though getting Paragon points doesn't take away from Renegade or vice versa, it encourages you to, to really go in one direction, open up new dialogue trees. 
So because I was playing mostly Paragon, I found myself just kind of lazily by default always picking Paragon. Whereas if I was really trying to role play, I kind of mix it up a little bit. Right. Yeah. And then if you're trying to achieve certain goals in the game, if you mix it up, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot um, in favor of trying to make the narrative flow more naturally. Exactly. And, you know, this all, again, ties in so much to, to, to Lee's quote of engagement as a choice because you can choose. I could choose if I wanted to to play as my character, and I really did try to in Heavy Rain. Um and in other games too. But the thing is, the way that gaming is at the moment, we play a lot of our games on the consoles, on PS3 and for Xbox 360. And uh, ultimately, these consoles are designed to tell you you're doing well at something. They give you achievements. They show the games that you've played on your trophy-like card or whatever, your gamer card. Same for Steam. I mean, achievements is pretty much now a mainstay of the modern video game. You know, it just doesn't make sense to have something like that, say, in Heavy Rain. And yet it's there. And they didn't. They they did this, you know, that, that first trophy, like, this is an interactive drama. And I thought, oh, brilliant. You've, you've tried to subvert the system. No, no, you haven't. The whole thing is, like, trophy-laden <laughs> with ways to win trophies, you know, things to do to win trophies, which just seems to go against the ethos so much of that game. Although, I feel like a lot of the trophies simply represent a possible outcome like you get a trophy for getting this possible outcome in this scene and it's almost like an index of your progress uh in terms of percentage of the game experienced can i give you one specific example that isn't yes the first thing the first chapter my god we are talking about heavy rain the first chapter <laughs> where you you know you you go around your house and you go play with your kids um if you do i think it's like everything you're asked and then go play with your kids and, and beat them, then you get a trophy. If you don't, then you don't. That, that to me, seems to reinforce a win state. That's really enough heavy rain chat. Um, it, it would be nice if there was a trophy for winning, you know, for beating the kid in the fight, and one for losing as well. Exactly. Yes, thank you. I, I, that would be perfect. But I, yeah, we really do need to move on from Heavy Rain. So, okay. uh, Jeff, <laughs> number four. <laughs> okay. Um, so, number four was oh, um, something we, we've talked about before a little bit of ludonarrative dissonance when you're doing something that odds with. Um, a good example would be in Red Dead Redemption, when you can go around collecting flowers. And it's not like somebody in the game asks you to do this for them. It's just something in your menu, just a challenge, you know, separate from, from any form of narrative that if you complete, you get a reward, an achievement, et cetera, et cetera. And it just it doesn't make any sense for, like, this badass cowboy to be riding around collecting flowers. I think there are two ways to look at uh, things like collection in Red Dead Redemption. One is that it helps the player... Um, sort of feel connected to the world and to explore and get acclimated with their environment and enjoy that aspect of the game, which is fine, except when you start thinking about the overall narrative and what may be a more urgent situation than sitting on your couch playing a game and enjoying the sunsets. So it sort of works both ways. It can help to engage you or it can disengage you from the narrative. 
engage with the world, disengage from the narrative. I, I, my well, argument but... would be that maybe it isn't lunar narrative dissonance because maybe you are filling in parts of his character by doing this. Maybe mm. it's, you know, in some way you're kind of providing a new dimension to his character. A softer he side, if you want. Sorry? He reminds us of botanist? No, this but like... Well, look, we, in fairness, like, <laughs> he, he is quite a soft character for someone who's a badass. Like, he, he, sh- he shows a real soft side with yeah. uh, the, the, the woman in that sort of first chapter where he's very delicate and uh, polite and charming. And, you know, like, maybe he does, for all the bad things, he does feel like, you know, you see someone in distress or help, like, you should help them. Okay, the botany, maybe that is a stretch. But, like, the helping people who are uh, stru- stuck in the middle of the of the desert, maybe he's the kind of guy who does. Like, he can't yeah, help but that it. Makes and it comes a back. Bit more, I feel like, you know, saving people who are in danger makes a little bit more sense for his character. And there is the other thing that Eddie said, that it is optional. Like, you are kind of willingly breaking him, in a yeah. sense. It comes back also to the character that you're writing in your head and the story that you're writing in your head versus the character that's there to be witnessed. It's, it's your choice to break him or not. Right. And I, I just feel like sometimes it, it gives you, um, similar to what you were saying about Heavy Rain, it encourages you to break it by giving right. you an achievement and, you know, winning states and, you know, filling out another, um, you know, checking another box in your menu of stuff to do. It's a good point. Achievements and box checking. You know, so we could do a whole to... podcast where it's just me going, let's get rid of achievements and make them optional. <laughs> like, really? Mm. I, I, could, well, I could go there. Something I wanted to throw out about that, um, unless you guys have more, more to add. No, please do. Okay. Um, so before this podcast, I was talking to my girlfriend about this concept. And she's ADD, and she mentioned how having other stuff to do like this, it doesn't break the narrative for her. It keeps her engaged because if there wasn't all the side stuff to do, if you're just riding your horse from point A to point B, it, it might get boring. And it's it's totally easy for some people to just to break the narrative and just enjoy the, the more play aspects and go around knocking over NPCs and just doing funny things are totally odds my character. And then you get to the next cutscene and you're just back in dramatic mode. And I don't think... So basically, the argument is that some level of disengagement is healthy, that it, it prevents your mind from wandering too much and just keeps you entertained in what you're doing. Is that something to do with pacing, would you say, maybe? Because um, that's what I feel like Lee was talking about with Persona 4 in her piece. Like, a, it was, it, like I said, it was a very, you know, uh, slowly told story, but that helped it. You know, it wouldn't have worked as well if it was all in your face straight away. Mm. Like, you know, I just wondered, like, do you know, the, it's kind of like the beats of narrative, isn't it? Uh, that's how I feel with Grand Theft Auto 4 particularly. Like, you had these kind of beats of narrative where you get a, a very strong story bit and then you go to a side quest, you do a side quest, strong story bit, side quest, side quest. And it almost feels kind of natural to get into that rhythm. Whereas I just, it, I don't, you know, maybe I don't want to go story, 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 because maybe that's just a bit, a bit too much. And it, it, it it, I don't really feel like the character is, you know, he evolves maybe too quickly. Maybe it's, in some way it's, it's my responsibility to to bring pacing to that story and to keep him from changing too quickly. 
It's interesting hmm. responsibility of the gamer. I mean, I guess that's part of the whole discussion is it's all your responsibility oh. to make the game good for yourself. You see, that's the thing. That it can't be, though. Surely that, 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 that can't be right. It's not <laughs> yeah. all our responsibility. You know, this is, this is the other the counter side that I really wanted to get into. And I think this is what Jeff is trying to say as well. Like, sometimes that responsibility is taken away from us. Like, there are things that are just so bad or poor or just barriers that are just too huge, no more heroes, that um, prevent us from enjoying the game for what it is. I, I, and I, you know, I, it's interesting that, you know, some, that, that is a subjective thing. For example, Jeff really enjoyed what there is to enjoy in Deadly Premonition, but Joe hated that game. He found all the things that Jeff, you know, admitted and openly mentioned as very poor aspects of that game, just too, too much. It was, there was nothing, there was no way he could appreciate that game any deeper than these barriers. So, um, as much as it's subjective and as much as, you know, there is a response you can say is a responsibility for us to enjoy the game. I feel like there are a lot of things that game designers can do to give that to to make that choice easier to to make. If you get my drift, like yeah. maybe there is a choice to make, but it's up to the game designers to make that choice as easy to make as possible. Yeah, and one of them I, I came up with uh, recently was playing Dead Rising Case Zero. The game has a lot of humor. You know, you can wear dresses and do all kinds of funny things, but because there's a ticking clock. I really wanted to to accomplish my goals, and you know, your goal is to save your daughter, and and it's not that I cared that much about the characters, or or would have invested that much on my own ordinarily. Um, if there was no time limit, I probably just would have gone out and started slaughtering zombies for my first half hour before being like, okay, I should probably move on now. But because of that sense of urgency, it kind of placed me in that character's shoes more. Right. right, so that's an example of more ludonarrative confluence. I want to get this term into right. blogging and podcasting, ludonarrative confluence. Or congruence. Is it, is it, you see, I really hope it's not wrong English and confluence isn't like the wrong term. <laughs> <laughs> Sinan tried to introduce a wrong <laughs> term for, for something. It might be congruence, but I feel like it is confluence. I really hope it is confidence. That's hilarious. That is interesting. I kind of made myself laugh. Hey. Ready? It's more than just a collection of great gaming podcasts. It's more than just a large community of smart, friendly gamers. It's more than your average gaming experience. Whatever you get from your current gaming experience, get more. Come on, listen. Um, one thing that I think is, is kind of an interesting idea of how a game designer can work to make that choice easier for us is with games which involve creation tools, things like Scribble Notes things like Little Big Planet 
and and in particular EA's upcoming Create, which I got a chance to see at an EA event last week, and I was quite impressed. Uh, I thought that it was a really nice idea, and there were a lot of uh, that sounds really patronising, but it did seem like you know the concept is is in, impressive and. Uh, there's a a lot of nice ideas within the play of how you can kind of combine things and make these elaborate uh, sequences to have these really kind of cool animations and 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 things like that. But all I we're not talking about the game too much. I wanted to kind of talk about what the lead designer said because he was talking a lot about subverting the natural mindset of a gamer or the gamer in terms of understanding that, it, like I said, a game's not just about winning. And it's not in this term. It's not. It's not about playing a character. But in terms of understanding that there's not a win state, that you could just create something. That a game can be a creation, a, a, a platform for creation. And we've we've seen a lot of games which are like that. Where you know, like I mentioned, Scribblenauts, Let's Be Planet, uh, to some extent, things like Crayon Physics Deluxe. Um, but they've all felt compelled to include gamey type single player campaigns within them. Or even like you know, Little Big Planet is, is car. But my point is, there are these gamey campaigns to be won, and, and even EA's Create has this kind of campaign where you have to, to you know, you have to do challenges to 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 win. I don't know what it is. Uh, you win, but you you probably unlock stuff as you go through these challenges. Um, so even that, even you know, as much as he's saying trying to do a lot with his game to subvert the natural mindset of a gamer, he still feels like. The, you have to have that bit in there. You have to have this kind of like this branch, this bridge, to to ease people into the idea. Like, is that? I, I, what I'm trying to get at is: is this really a problem with the gaming community? And is this something the industry really is having a difficulty with? I mean, do you feel like that's reflected in the bad sales, or is that the right game just hasn't come along yet? I think it's just hard for people to to change their understanding of what can be offered on video game consoles um, where we expect these these driven experiences with with goals and, and win states and all that. But there are certainly other enjoyable things that a person can do, you know, you know, in, in life. And these games sort of try to capture just playing around as opposed to playing with purpose. You know, Jeff mentioned that game Alchemy. I don't think you remember the name on the last show that we were on together where you just sort of take elements and combine them and see what you come up with. And that can be enjoyable, just sitting there seeing what comes out. Or like that game, uh, it's been around for a long time. I think it's called Grow. Uh, It's a Flash game. And you just sort of start putting things onto a ball on the screen and new things just pop up. And it's really just you sit there and you, you just see what comes up next by combining different things in strange ways. And I, I'm not entirely familiar with Create, but if it's that sort of just, you know, play with what you have, then yeah, it's something that is not super prevalent in the grand library of games and what we've seen before. But I don't think that there's a problem with it. I think it's just another segment of what the medium will have to offer as that segment grows. <laughs> I, mean, I think we talked about a lot of this in the, the other episode with uh, Louis Denby about games that aren't games. And I think yeah. we all kind of agreed that um, the three of us at least couldn't really get into those sorts of games that much. But... 
Um, it's interesting, though. <laughs> <laughs> and here comes the, the patronizing voice. And yeah, it's it's cool for people who like that sort of thing. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, industry. <laughs> well, if, I, if, I, if I can counter Jeff's disinterest a little bit, like I, I'm a really big fan of The Sims as a franchise, and I yeah. feel like The Sims is the kind of forgotten, and I admit I've forgotten it, and just talking about you know introducing this idea, the forgotten creative game. Uh, because originally the first Sims was very, very much a goal-free video game. There really wasn't a win state. The second and the third iterations have kind of changed that a little bit more, but I still feel like the essence and the idea of just giving you characters to do what you want with and create stories for yourself with is there in The Sims. And these, that franchise is crazy in terms of its commercial success. It is ridiculous. I think it's the, it's either the fourth or third most successful video game franchise of all times. It might even be like just you know behind Mario or something in terms of like number two. But it, you know, people obviously get it with that game. Do you think? In some way, it's having that human factor there. You know, have it. In you know, I don't know. Maybe for me, for example, I really enjoyed uh, being part of a play society at university and directing plays, and I kind of brought that to The Sims. I do you think that's something that maybe is easier to for us to just naturally acclimatize to this idea of creating and manipulating a story? Yeah, actually, I think that's a really good point. I think that's. I've never played The Sims, and I like to play the next one when it comes to consoles. And I think that's maybe one of the big reasons reasons I can never get behind um, some of these non-win games like Nobi Nobi Boy, um, just because they just felt a little bit too too remote to me. But um, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about my experiences with Fable, and you know, most of my favorite moments in that were just cutscene around and doing funny things with NPCs. So whole whole game of that actually does sound appealing. See, that's the thing about Fable, though, is that it sort of masquerades as a game with purpose, but it really wants to be a game like The Sims. That's really very, very apt. I really, I think that is exactly what Fable is. Um, and maybe Fable that's, 2. Fable 2, sorry, yes. Yeah. I've not, I must admit, I've not played the original Fable, and I wonder if how much that also affects my judgment of Fable 2, but that is, again, another different story. Um <laughs> I think we kind of covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'm trying to just quickly look at our notes. It's, it's I'll, I'll admit, listeners, you know, having Lee drop out halfway through the show, it's, it's kind of thrown us a little bit. Um, but uh, I feel like we we really did kind of cover a lot of what we wanted to talk about, and uh, and I feel like we got an idea of what Lee was trying to say with her piece, and it's in, it was very interesting for me to hear how she kind of had the reverse thing with Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft that I had and, you know, shows how, how subjective video game and video game criticism can be. Um, and I, I, I feel like, you know, that may be a pretty good note to end this show on unless either of you have anything you wanted to add. Did you want to go over, do a round table, see uh, who agrees with the quotes? And... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Unless we... Okay. So, before we go, let's just kind of see if we, we do agree with that statement that Lee said, that engagement is a choice. And she did say engagement is a choice, dash in part. So, And I feel like people forget that. Um, so she's not saying the whole responsibility lies on the game, but some responsibility lies on the game. Um, is that fair, Eddie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I agree with it. 
it's it's a pretty simple statement. It's almost like saying that people choose to attend to what interests them, right. which I think is like a given. I mean, sometimes a game doesn't make a person work so hard to like it, like we said, but for the most part, people sort of anticipate their feelings before they ever feel them, you know? And, uh, I don't know, it serves as either a conscious or a subconscious decision, but at some point it's it's a decision, you know, to go down the path of either engagement or, or, or non-engagement. But, yes, that was my long-winded version of saying yes. I really want to kind of just follow that up because you said something very interesting there. Do you think it's it's a binary choice? Do you think no. it's a conscious binary choice? No. No, no. No, there are, there you can engage with parts of a game and right. not others. And then sort of choose which holds more value for you in your overall um, engagement with the title or or perception of the title, you know, or reception of the title. <laughs> And all the other actions of titles. <laughs> inception I, 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 of the title. Oh, don't, let's not go down the inception <laughs> road. <laughs> How about yourself, Jeff? Um, I definitely agree with the in part um, thing. I think that makes it a lot, a lot better. Because the thing is, I, I really feel like almost every game I play, if not every game I play, I try to invest in it. Um, but often something prevents that from happening. You know, either bad writing or poor design choices or just any number of things. So I, I feel like most, like a vast majority of games, we either will or we won't. Um, but we have some sway in that. Um, right. Uh, you don't come so into a it, game saying, oh, I don't want to engage with this. Damn this game. I don't want to like it. You want to come in and actually like the right. games that right. you're playing. I think that it is. I do think that the designer has a lot to do. I mean, I mentioned Fable earlier, and like I, I believe the first time I played that game, my wife and it divorced me, or my I lost my kid, or something. And instead of being really upset, I, which I felt like I should have been, I was just like, oh, that's too bad. And I wanted to invest, it just it wasn't happening. So, um, I, I'd say it's, you know, it would it behooves gamers to try and invest, but you can't you can't do it every time. Because a lot of the time you just at least in my experience, I feel like I'm kind of lying to myself and trying to make something seem important when I really know that it's just kind of silly. <laughs> that, that's interesting. I, I, I'm kind of reminded of what uh, a friend of the show, Brad Calloway, said to me a couple of, couple of weeks ago. Now he, he, I think, Eddie, you, you agreed with him. In the, in, this is all over Twitter. This is where we did most of our discussion, Big Red Potion listeners, over Twitter. Um, I think Brad said that he goes into games looking for something good to hold on to that kind of you know it, it, that's that there's something there to enjoy about this game and he, <laughs> you can sift through all the bad and find this bit of good and as long as that bit of good is strong enough then that's okay um which i think you know is, it sounds simple enough but it's funny how much of games criticism isn't like that i feel like you know um and, and not just games criticism how much of players gets go beyond games criticism like how a lot of players expect things to be perfect in their games and will mm-hmm. not really tolerate something that is bad something that d- detracts from the experience um and i think that's it's kind of interesting and i and, I, and you know what you're saying eddie like it's a, it's a it is a kind of a simple obvious statement engagement is a choice in part um and at the same time like when you we've managed to break it down over for sort of an hour and a half now i think and it's obvious like there's 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 a lot of facets to it. There's a lot of things that maybe 
as players, as the industry, as people who talk about video games and write about them, we need to think about that statement and kind of remember that, you know, part of the onus is on the player. And, uh, you know, I think like, you know, we've said the industry needs to think about it because they need to know that they need to make that choice maybe easier for the player to make. As the critic, we need to be aware of how we are when we're, you know, playing a video game. And players themselves, you know, maybe they need to not expect what is being sold to them by the marketing all the time. Uh, you know, and maybe we do listen to designers a bit too much. Maybe maybe we should, we don't listen to them enough. I don't know. But it's interesting to think about it and to realise that there is a lot of a lot more to that statement than meets the eye. And I feel like I've given my final thoughts on the statement there. So uh, that is where we're going to close today's show. I would like to thank Eddie and Jeff for joining me today. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. No problem. And a big thank you to the absently who, who've, like I said, fought through natural disasters <laughs> to join us today. Even if it was just for half the show, unfortunately her internet got cut off and uh, she has a work to go back to. But w- hopefully we will get her on a future show. Uh, I'll endeavour to try and uh, persuade us to join us again next early next year. I think that would be great. And we should say that you can find uh, Lee at her blog, Sexy Video Game Land dot dot com. So that's Sexy Video Game Land as one word dot blogspot as one word dot com. She's also the editor of Gamma Sutra. Uh, com and Jeff, some of your columns sometimes end up on Sutra, don't they? Uh, yeah, actually, I just look at it and it looks like they, they all have. Um, so my Games That Watch column, Define Design, is is up there, and um, Lee is apparently the one who, who does the editing of them, which I thought that just had confirmed for me before we did the show. Right. Yeah, yeah. We, we which just makes to... them actually readable. <laughs> 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 Oh, it's funny because it's true. No, it's not. That's me. Jeff's I can't believe you said excellent. Jeff's column is excellent. excellent. Defying design. Oh. And it's usually at gamesatwatch.com, but it sometimes makes its way to gamasutra.com. Yeah, it usually comes out like a week later or so, or you know, a few days later. But yeah, you can find it either. So yeah, uh, we should probably say where we can find you guys and anything else you would like to shout out to this week. So, Eddie, uh, please tell us about all the things that you do and uh, anyone or anything you'd like to shout out to this week? Um, well, I've got a lot going on over at GamerNode now. We've we've really upped our output. We have a lot of news going up, um, features all the time. There's a new appealing to a new type of gamer girl up on GamerNode.com, um, written by Nikki Lee, which is uh, an interesting take on how games can appeal to real women and not like little girls or what uh, we perceive women's uh, likes and dislikes to be. And then we have list of internet things worth hating by Kyle Hilliards, another nice little funny feature. We have other things like that all the time. We have our um, versus node podcast, which consists of the regular show, which took a lot of influence from big red potion um, and discusses a topic uh, in particular for the full length and then we have our replay podcast at the end of the month where we talk about what we have been playing um, and reviews all the time etc etc um, I'm actually currently doing something really fun uh, and hopefully interesting it's called the 30 day gamer challenge I picked it up off tumblr but I decided I would throw it on my column at GamerNode. so it's a list of 30 different um, I guess, questions that I answer with 
a particular game. Like the first one was, uh, okay, what is your favorite game right now? But more interesting ones are like a Hang game. Hang on, don't, don't, don't skip ahead. Was it yeah. Braid? <laughs> it was, wasn't it? <laughs> would it? Would it be me if it wasn't Braid? <laughs> I read yeah. it. I must admit. <laughs> oh, okay. But there are questions like games that have um that make you feel happy, a game that made you feel sad, a game that you feel is underrated. And I'm going through it blindly, so I never know what the next day is going to bring. So I, I think that's a really fun thing to do and maybe a fun thing to read. I don't know. Have you read many of them? I read a few the of them. One. No, I, I read a few. I read your your what game has made you feel the most sad, which was uh-huh. my my favorite video game, uh, one of my favorite video games, which was Final Fantasy X. And no, yeah. it, it is a really ni- neat idea. Um, I think you know you've taken like a kind of uh, it's like one of those sort of surveys, and you've brought a real sort of feature out of it. So yeah, it's yeah. like get to know your gamer node editor, so you can see where I'm coming from. <laughs> Absolutely. But- that's that's, I think I've talked enough Ooh. about Gamer Node, <laughs> but that's basically what I do. So, Jeff, uh, how about yourself? We already talked about your uh, Define Design column. Anything else you'd like to shout out to this week? Uh, yeah, so a couple weeks ago I went to PAX, and I ended up doing a hands-on preview of Duke Nukem Forever for Eurogamer. So, that's Euro exciting. who? Euro what? <laughs> Eurogamer. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um. Shall I, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. By the way, we'll put a link, put a link in that, and put, we'll also link to Eddie's 30, 30, 30 day gamer challenge. But yes, your gamer preview of Duke Nukem Forever, very, very well done. Thank you. Oh, and a shout out. Um, Joe got a new cat, so I'd like to give a shout out to Joe's cat. Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to Earth, Sabrina. <laughs> I think I think I think Sabrina has been on Earth for a while. <laughs> oh, not a, a kitten. She, no, no, she's quite a big mog. Um, unless kittens come out that big, I don't think they do. But uh, I think I think she's a uh, she's five years old actually. I remember Joe saying to me earlier today. But yeah, uh, that is the reason why Joe is not with us. He is looking after his cat, who has been a complete nightmare in the two days that he's had uh, Sabrina. Like, apparently, she just scratched the hell out of Joe's girlfriend uh, yesterday, and she was, like, hiding underneath the sofa and in the sofa. And, <laughs> you know, like, wherever a ninja cat could hide, she was hiding. Is he so, sure that this is a cat and not a mogwai? You don't want to see those after midnight. I, I just worry about the Delia household at this stage, I must oh, admit. Boy. But, uh, yeah. Joe. That that is why he's not here. Zan was also going to join us, but uh, to be frank, if anyone's been listening over the last month, Zan has been incredibly busy on the podcast scene, and I think uh, you know it's like right now it's one o'clock in the morning, and the poor guy just needed some rest. So uh, unfortunately, he can join us, but we we miss him, and we look forward to joining both Joe and Zan next time. Uh, very, very quickly then from me, I'm just going to say that you can find a lot of what I'm doing at shoinan.com. That's S-H-O-I-N-A-N.com. And uh, I, oh, one thing, actually, I was on the In Retrospect podcast, which I don't think will probably go up before the show, but I would recommend the podcast anyway. It's you know, run by uh, some really intelligent guys who all went to university get together and have kind of got this nice camaraderie and... Uh, sort of honesty about them that you kind of get when people have been together for a long time and they bring a lot of really sort of interesting ideas to their show and you can find them at inretrospectpodcast.com and thank you so much to them for inviting me on the show I had a really really wonderful time and uh, 
if you, eventually at some point I'm, I will be on that show uh, what else is there to say you can find us on Facebook facebook.com if you search for Big Red Potion we have a page and if you like us please give us a like on Facebook and join our little group you can find updates on the show through it and you can also find updates through Twitter twitter.com slash Big Red Potion and all the stuff that we are doing and um, anything that's Big Red Potion related you'll find at bigredpotion.com so on that note thank you again for joining us look out for another show in two weeks time and please enjoy the games you're playing bye for now